Welcome to the BLS Report. This is a series of podcasts that are conversations about corporate accountability. My name is Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School, and I have with me John Keeves from Johnson Winter Slattery in Adelaide. Hello, John. Pamela, how are you? Good, thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about the intended audience for the podcast? Well, it's BLS members, and we've got a very broad membership, as you know, in the uh, lawyers uh, in business law, uh, but also, I guess, lawyers more generally, law students and other people who are interested in corporate accountability. Excellent. So the BLS stands for the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia, and they're supporting the production of this podcast in memory of our late colleague and mentor, Professor Bob Baxt. Can you tell us a little bit about Bob? Well, besides being a chair of the Business Law Section, uh, Bob was a chair of the Trade Practices Commission, the predecessor to the ACCC, uh, Dean of Law at Monash, uh, uh, Professor at uh, Melbourne University as well, and a partner at both uh, Freehills and Allens. Yes. So a person with enormous contribution to the regulation of business in Australia as a solicitor, as an academic and as a regulator. Um, John, you're a solicitor of many decades standing in commercial law. That's right, isn't it? Indeed. I think it's more than 30 now. Oh, dear. And I'm a professor in the business school at UNSW, specialising in corporate law and regulation. Uh, But you've also had experience as a regulator and as a practising lawyer, I think. That's true. That's true. So a former regional commissioner of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission in Queensland, which was an interesting experience. All right, so for this first podcast, we thought we'd talk about the themes of corporate accountability and whether there's been a real shift in focus over the last decade or so. We've talked about this before, John, and and I think there is an evidence of a shift there. What do you think? Uh, I think since 2008 and the GFC, uh, there has been a a shift. Uh, Exactly what we can attribute that to is not clear. It's multifactorial, in my view. I think the effect of the GFC, the the corporate rescues that had to be undertaken, um, particularly internationally, not so much in Australia, but also since that time, the growth in in social media, um, I think, has had a, a real effect on uh, the climate and how corporations are viewed within our society. But uh, there are other themes as well that we can probably touch on too. I think so too. I think having done this job for a couple of decades, myself. The thing that I've really noticed over the last 10 years is that the general sort of erosion of trust in institutions that we're seeing measured in the Edelman Trust Index, amongst other things, is really carried across to business. And I think maybe in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, there was a real sense in the community that business and business leaders weren't held accountable in appropriate ways. And that's led to a real dissatisfaction, I think, and lack of trust in the regulatory architecture and indeed in the ability of governments and regulators to get corporations and big business to behave in a way that meets community expectations. So one of the things that has produced is a really robust discussion about what the purpose of the business corporation is. And that's going to be the theme for this first conversation, to talk about the idea of the purpose of the business corporation and the importance that that may or may not have in controlling and guiding corporate behaviour in the future. So again, the BLS report, Conversations in Corporate Accountability, and we're going to talk a little bit about the changes that came about last year in relation to the idea of the purpose of the corporation. So one of the developments 
that attracted global attention in August of last year was that the Business Roundtable in the United States decided to put out a new statement explaining what it saw as the purpose of the business corporation. We'll just have a listen to a little grab that explains the shift in focus between what the Business Roundtable's position had previously been, focusing very much on interests of shareholders, towards what it says is a more inclusive approach to defining the purpose of the corporation to take into account the impact of its activities on other stakeholders. Statement signed by almost 200 CEOs, including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, says companies should focus on all stakeholders, including employees, customers, and local communities. So, John, what do you think about the announcement from the Business Roundtable in the United States to alter its formal statement on the purpose of the corporation? Well, shareholder primacy has been, I guess, a bit of a bedrock for the for the United States approach to the corporation for for a long time and I think that's been kind of was integrated into the way people thought about how directors how top management should be acting so it's quite surprising to see uh, the business roundtable being a group of business leaders in the US uh, kind of making such a diametrically opposed change to what had been the accepted wisdom so it's certainly it's significant in that sense but if you read the statement carefully one could be slightly skeptical and say they're going to keep doing what they've always done but be a bit nicer about it i think that the response to the statement in the united states if you look at the letters to the editor the next day in the wall street journal it was a very divided response so some people saw this as a bit of a watershed moment in corporate history and a real shift in value and approach from corporate leaders in the US towards a more stakeholder-focused outcome. And other people were perhaps a bit more sceptical or a bit more cynical and wondered whether it was just the same old, same old, but in new packaging. Have you formed a view on that? I think... Well, I think there's probably a bit of both, but I think we are seeing the beginning of what will probably be a long-term change. I think that's driven by uh, some institutional investors who finally kind of, the penny has dropped, that the long-term impacts of corporate behaviour are very important for the um, institutional investors that have a 30 or 40 or 50 year time horizon for their investments, which if you're running a pension fund, you really do need to have. And thus, people are starting to realise that the short-term shareholder primacy in the sense of looking just for short-term profits and, and quarterly results probably isn't in the long-term interests of the investor class, just like it's probably uh, not in the interests of the community. If you talk to boards, they'll often wonder whether institutional imp- investors are playing a multi-level game here. So they might be saying that they care about long-term returns, but they're coming into the boardroom and asking about quarterly performance of the management team and the board. Do you see that as an issue? I think the institutional investor wants it all, but there are obviously different investors and some have short-term horizons or more short-term horizons. Uh, The fact is that if investors are prepared to let top management and boards have regard to the long-term impacts of what they're doing as opposed to just focusing on short-term, then I think that that can only be a a good thing. And I do wonder whether part of this discussion is actually giving people some scope or giving management some scope to, to be more broadly stakeholder focused rather than just focusing on quarterly or half yearly results and being able to push back a bit when the investors are are knocking on the door. I think it's probably worth 
worth just emphasising what the Business Roundtable in the US statement talked about. And they said this, while each of our individual companies serves its own corporate purpose, we share a fundamental commitment to all our stakeholders. We commit to, and then they've got a couple of dot points. The first one is delivering value to customers. The second is investing in our employees. The third is dealing fairly and ethically with suppliers. The fourth is supporting the communities in which we work. And the fifth is generating long-term value for shareholders. So that long-term perspective that you were talking about is upfront in the Business Roundtable's new commitment. And without, without wanting to get too philosophical about it, and I mean, in one sense, Adam Smith is, is a philosopher, uh, even going back to the idea of the, if you like, the invisible hand, it was all about enlightened self-interest. And I think taking that sort of long-term view and taking into account the interests of shareholders is just really a, a more enlightened approach to what's in the in the interest of the corporation. And I, I, I personally think that if a corporation is not having regard to the effect on their employees, their customers, their suppliers, their stakeholders generally, then they're lacking a bit in diligence if they're not thinking about the long-term consequences of what they're doing because we hear the expression sustainability used in, in many contexts, but in terms of business sustainability, how can you have a, a company that's going to be long-term sustainable and long-term sustainable in the sense of delivering long-term term uh, healthy returns for, for shareholders, for investors, unless you have regard to the long-term impacts of what you're doing. Yeah, I agree. I might ask you just to explain to us the legal settings in Australia. Often amongst students, I'll come across the misconception that directors and senior officers in corporations owe their duty to shareholders, but that's not correct, is it, under Australian law? It's a it's a convenient first approximation for most purposes, but as, as you know, the duty is owed, the duty of, of good faith is owed to the company. And we use, as you know, the idea of what's in the best interest of shareholders as a kind of an approximation for that. And it's a good first approximation, but we are uh, really talking about what's in the best interest of, of the corporation. And it's quite clear that having regard to the interests of various stakeholders is, is permitted. I mean, in Australia, it's not said expressly. In the, the UK, in England, um, a few years ago, there were amendments made to make that explicit that Shareholder, that stakeholder interests wider than, than shareholders could be taken into account. But I mean, ultimately, a company is being run for the benefit of the shareholders in some way. And you can't, if you like, take away their assets and just give them to someone else. But thinking about the effect on your customers, I mean, looking after your customers, acting ethically and responsibly towards your customers, in a sense, that can only be good business. And I think some of the things we saw, particularly in the, the Banking Royal Commission, were, were organisations not thinking that way about their customers, not thinking uh, long term about their customers, about their reputation, but thinking short term. It's interesting the way law drives thinking about these things or shapes behaviour, because when we as lawyers talk about the directors and officers' duty to act in good faith in the best interests of the company as a whole, we have a particular legal lens that we apply to that. But I think when you when you're giving advice to directors or you're working on a transaction with a company and you ask the directors themselves what do they see as their role, you know, where do they see their duties lying, then I always hear back, you know, long-term interests, sustainability, balance, those kinds of words. So I wonder whether sometimes as lawyers we get a little bit fixated on what the judges have to say in the most egregious circumstances because they're the ones that end up in court and we don't actually ask the business community itself, well, how do you see... Your 
your role and how do you take into account the interests not only of contractual stakeholders, so people that you deal with like employees and suppliers and customers, but also other interests, so the community, the environment, uh, the future, if you like, or the stability of the financial system or, or those things. And I think for good boards, it's they do have those ideas in their mind, but sometimes maybe directors feel like they lack the language to share those perspectives with their fellow directors or they can't find time in the board agenda to, to talk about these things because they're so busy, you know, doing all that compliance work that we now expect of boards. I wanted to ask you about a very famous transaction that occurred in Australia about 15 years ago, and that is the restructure of James Hardy. Now, James Hardy owned, uh, had a subsidiary that was in the asbestos business and uh, left a series of people who'd been harmed by their exposure to asbestos, and the company had chosen to make arrangements to compensate those people. So about 15 years ago, a decision was was made to restructure the business and to effectively move those compensation liabilities off the company balance sheet and into a a separate fund, compensation fund. And it subsequently transpired that the amount of money that James Hardy had put into that fund was not going to be sufficient to meet uh, all of the claims of people who had suffered from dust diseases as a result of the subsidiaries' activities. And it's it's a really interesting example because it's one of the few situations in Australia where there really arguably was a diametrically opposed interest between the shareholders who would want to preserve the viability of the company and make sure it had enough money to keep operating and all of those things and the interests of another stakeholder group, which were people who'd been harmed by products that had been produced by the subsidiary. And as I say, neither of us was in the in the James Hardy boardroom when that transaction was, was being contemplated. But I wonder whether you think this broader focus on stakeholder interests and the need to make sure that the sometimes people talk about a social licence, that the company's social licence is maintained, might mean that the discussion in the boardroom around a transaction like James Hardy is different now? Undoubtedly. Um, I have for other reasons been looking at the, uh, the the reports of the James Hardy decisions all the way from the New South Wales Supreme Court up to the High Court in the last couple of weeks as it happens. And I think we do have a fairly good insight thanks to those uh, decisions as to what happened inside and what didn't happen inside the boardroom in James Hardy. There are some question marks and we're not in some cases exactly sure what happened because there were some minutes that were approved and no one's quite sure whether they do reflect the facts, but they were they were definitely approved. But I think it's undoubtedly the case that an Australian corporate faced with a similar situation today in, in 2020, certainly subsequent to the, to the Banking Royal Commission, uh, would handle that situation differently. Now, exactly how they'd do it, I don't know, but I think the chance of there being a a, a rerun of that particular situation and the consequences of it would be very, very low because I I think there there are a couple of features of the James Hardy case which, with the benefit of hindsight, I don't think uh, even if you were having a rerun back in 2003 or whenever it was, uh, if they had the benefit of hindsight, they'd do it differently too. Yeah, but interestingly enough, none of the directors or officers of the company broke the law in the sense of the transaction itself. In fact, they were pursued by the Securities Commission, but that was in respect of a mistake that they'd made in an announcement. So the case against them was actually a disclosure case because they'd announced to the stock exchange 
that the compensation fund had adequate money in it. That was found not to be true. And so the directors, after very drawn out legal proceedings, were actually subject to civil penalties in a couple of cases, but for the disclosure failure, not for the transaction itself. That's absolutely right. And yet there were a number of disclosure failures that were were found to have occurred, but the transaction in and of itself was almost certainly in the interests of shareholders and probably in the interest of management as well, by extension. But that's a, a really interesting insight because the regulator didn't go after them for what they did. It's what they said and didn't say about what they did. And I think if you recall the, the, the community backlash, it's not surprising that the regulator did what they did because that's all they could do. You're on the BLS report, Conversations in Corporate Accountability. I just want to talk a little bit about, because we've mentioned the Australian Securities Exchange, I just want to talk a little bit about the ASX corporate governance principles and recommendations. So this is a set of principles supported by specific recommendations that go to how listed companies might organise themselves and conduct their affairs. They're not law in the sense of legislation, so they're what we sometimes refer to as soft law or self-regulation regulatory arrangements. But the way they work is that a listed company will, in its annual report, include some information to indicate whether it's adopted the principles and the recommendations or whether it's departed from them and, if so, why it might choose to do that. So there was a big discussion last year when the fourth edition of the principles and recommendations was adopted. They now include something which is Recommendation 3.1, and that is that a listed entity should articulate and disclose its value. So this is a recommendation from the Corporate Governance Council that all listed companies in Australia should, quote, articulate and disclose their values. And the commentary to that recommendation says this, a listed entity's values are the guiding principles and norms that define what type of organisation it aspires to be and what it requires from its directors, senior executives and employees to achieve that aspiration. Values create a link between the entity's purpose... They describe that as why it exists and its strategic goals, that is what it hopes to do, by expressing the standards and behaviours it expects from its insiders. I'm interested by the fact that this, I suppose, assumes that a corporation will have thought about its purpose because of that suggestion that the values link the purpose and the strategy. So clearly this is at the front of mind for the members of the Corporate Governance Council. That recommendation, though, when it was adopted, was quite controversial. And the original commentary that was exposed in the exposure draft talked about the need to maintain the social licence and so on. And I think the Corporate Governance Council came back a little bit from that. But it's interesting to see the idea of the corporate purpose coming through in the Australian guidance as well. With a lot of these things, if all people do is go through a process in order to comply with a disclosure obligation and don't actually live it, it's actually counterproductive because if you state some values and then ignore them, people get very confused and they know that you don't mean what you say. And that's actually, I think, counterproductive for the corporate culture. I want to ask you what you think about regulatory interventions into purpose. So most boards would say to you those things we've talked about, purpose, values, strategy, are matters that are squarely within the responsibility of the board. And my sense of it is until 
2008, that was pretty much accepted. What we're tending to see now is that regulators are getting involved and whether they're self-regulatory organisations like the ASX Corporate Governance Council or indeed the conduct regulator, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, or for the case of the financial sector, the Prudential Regulator, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. They've all got quite a bit to say about corporate purpose at the moment. And I'm not sure that I'm convinced that it's the role of regulators to talk about these things. There's two approaches that regulators can take. They can say to a corporation, we don't care what your purpose is, but you need to be clear about it and you need to be clear that your values and your strategy align to it. Or regulators can say, we think your purpose ought to be this. And I wonder, sometimes it feels to me like we're on a bit of a knife edge between those two types of interventions in Australia at the moment. Am I jumping at shadows or do you have that same unease? I think any regulatory intervention in relation to purpose is fraught with with danger. I think that purpose is something that that needs to be left by and large to the management boards and shareholders, investors. The main difficulty is that, I mean, historically, traditionally, if you wanted to change the behaviour of a corporation, you passed a law hard law, soft law, moral suasion, required disclosure. So you actually try to change behaviour in that way. Trying to change corporate behaviour by trying to regulate purpose, I think is doomed to fail because it's just not something that, that is amenable to that or, or indeed any form of regulation. The only thing you can ever, ever regulate is conduct. The only way to change behaviour is to regulate conduct and I think what we're seeing is, a, is a, an increasing recognition, particularly since 2008, of what you might call the externality of the corporation, the effect of the corporation on the community, on people other than shareholders, and an increasing uh, recognition by regulators, by government, by the community that um, you know, corporations have an effect on people and trying to and saying, well, that's, that, we're not happy with that effect. And, but to do something about that, you can't just simply wave a magic wand and say, we want you to, to, to be more purposeful. It's, I think it's naive to think that that is the solution. And I think there are real problems if we go that way, because it, won't, it just won't end well. And it certainly won't have the desired effect. And there will be those terrible unintended consequences <laughs> that... Uh, that uh, lawyers so love. We, we love and the policymakers uh, think that uh, every time you want to object to something, you just raise the, the, the spurious unintended consequences. But my experience over that 30 years is just about every regulatory measure that's ever been introduced has unintended consequences. And that's why law reform has to be a dynamic process of making a change, seeing how it works, and then making another change that may respond to how people have responded to that. So it's never a kind of a wave the magic wand, fix the problem. It's always dynamic. Yeah. And we continually see the same problems happening over and over again. We've, we've talked about the ASX Corporate Governance Council principles and recommendations and the fact that they're, they're, they're soft law. Do you think they're an effective form of regulation? I think that you can use soft law in the sense of a statement to which people against which people report so whether that's you know we will behave sustainably or we will support communities or those sorts of things to have a statement and then to require corporations to report against that statement has value in respect of exactly those 
categories of interventions that you're talking about. So if the alternative is is hard law, so pass a law that says a corporation must put its employees' interests above all others. So if you passed a hard law like that, then I think amongst the unintended but not unforeseeable consequences would be really to suppress innovation and suppress risk-taking and all of those sorts of things by those hard law interventions. So I think if you use a soft law approach to regulate around these more indeterminate ideas like values and purpose and so on, by forcing the corporation to think about what it wants to say in that space and requiring it to provide information to its stakeholders about how it's performing in that space does have value. So it can be used for things that don't respond to hard law. The difficulty that you face at the moment with soft law type interventions like the ASX corporate governance is that for so long people have just made banal motherhood statements about, you know, we aspire to be the best or we're the nicest person in the world. They've said things about their environmental, social and governance performance that they haven't lived up to, and that's created a really high degree of cynicism in the community. And so now there's this view that, well, you know, you might say that you're committed to environmental values, but it's just greenwashing, really. It's just a marketing thing. And because no, there's no hard law requiring you to make decisions in a particular way, that's not effective. I'm not ready to give up on soft regulation yet for exactly the reasons that I'm worried about if, the, if we harden up and start to legislate around some of these more indeterminate concepts like fairness and things that are hard to define. I think that does damage to the legal system and that it's not likely to be any more effective than the soft law rules that we've got at the moment. What about the uh, English approach of, in effect, having a little bit of a not quite a safe harbour for directors to be able explicitly to take into account the interests of stakeholders other than shareholders? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So this, about 10 years ago, the United Kingdom didn't have any statutory director's duties. So that was all just part of the common law in terms of what was expected of company directors. And then they decided to capture the duties of directors in a piece of legislation. And in that legislation, they adopted a section that says directors must administer the company effectively in the interests of shareholders but may take into account the following considerations. We had a big law reform um, inquiry around that time about whether we should do a similar thing in Australia and I'm smiling at you John because I think you might have been on that advisory board when we looked at that question Um, and we decided we didn't need it in Australia that company directors in Australia had the freedom to take into account other stakeholder interests if they wanted to and one law professor at the time expressed the concern that the UK may have accidentally done the reverse of what it was planning to do because it did enshrine in legislation a primary obligation to manage the company in the interests of shareholders. So whereas ours says very clearly you must exercise your powers and discharge your duties in the best interests of the company, so we don't say shareholders, and then it falls to the board in Australia to understand how they might look into uh, the interests of the corporation, so who's, you know, who's in interests are relevant. I think their value lies in the fact that they require the corporation internally to have that discussion and have that discussion with its stakeholders. So when it's required by Recommendation 3.1 to articulate and disclose its values, the benefit of that strategy is not that the Corporate Affairs Department or the Public Affairs Department within the corporation comes up with a document which is signed off you know, at 4.30pm in the board meeting. It's actually the process of 
the corporation and its stakeholders arriving at what that statement should include. That drives the value of that approach. And that brings it back in a sense to close to where we started with the importance of the shareholders or investors in relation to corporate purpose. And so that dialogue between top management, the board, and their shareholders is something that that typically now takes place, sometimes intermediated by proxy advisors or people who provide a service to represent uh, large shareholders, although many, I guess, large Australian shareholder, institutional shareholders do engage directly with with the larger companies. But one of the problems has always been that uh, shareholders don't have enough bandwidth to actually engage in that dialogue with the company about anything, let alone purpose. Mm. And certainly if you're talking about index investors who are simply holding a, a security because it's made up in an index, let's be frank, they've got zero incentive to do anything other than minimise their costs because they're not making any high-powered investment decisions. They're just tracking an index. So their financial interests are spend as little time and effort managing this portfolio as possible. So they've got no incentive to engage with anybody about anything. So we started off at the beginning by talking about the audience for this podcast and we hope that it's going to be interesting for lawyers, uh, for law students and for policymakers who are responsible for thinking about how to get corporations to behave the way that we want them to. But it's also, I guess, for people who care about the impact that corporate behaviour has on individuals and on communities and on the environment. So when you think about it from that point of view, how helpful or otherwise do you think this new emphasis on the purpose of the corporation will be in changing things for the future? Well, let me respond to that in a roundabout way. I think everybody should be interested in the effect of corporations, corporate purpose, corporate accountability to some degree or other. How successful is this discussion on purpose going to be in terms of changing behaviour? Too early to tell. And I think one of the issues that we have in this, is Twitter still 144 characters? In this day and age of short communications and short cycles, is you have to take a decades-long view on some of these things and the, the change may be it may seem glacial, but you'll only be able to look back in five or 10 or 15 years' time to work out what happened with the benefit of hindsight. And unfortunately, that doesn't fit in with sort of our political cycles as well. I think one, one thing that we do need to keep in mind is that I think governments have very high expectations of what the corporate sector should be doing. And we see that in, um, in the energy sector in particular about what, uh, what the government kind of expects of, of corporates to, to, to do through some, sometimes there's a, a bit of moral suasion or there may be some carrot and stick. But that, um, the importance of the role of, of corporates is, uh, is, is undeniable. And I think for people, uh, for all of us, I think we need to, to, to think about this. And one of the things that worries me in the current age is that we expect corporations to solve these longer term social and economic issues because government has lost either the capacity or the ambition to deal with anything long term. And that's all very well, but corporations are not accountable to the public. Um, they're not They're not democratically accountable, John. And so when we think about, you know, well, do I really want 
Walmart to be making decisions about the future of the planet. I'm not so sure about that. I think I'd rather see a democratically accountable government step up and fill that space. But that makes me very unpopular these days. Yeah, but but that is, I mean, that is the, the role for government. The primary role is to regulate. And the primary way to affect behaviour of corporations is, has got to be fundamentally through regulation, hard, soft or, or somewhere in the middle. But look, fundamentally, reg- regulation has got to be the way. But one of the problems is we've got so much regulation already and the regulation that we've got in terms of corporates in, in the finance sector, whatever, it's not effective in the sense that it hasn't been effectively enforced and that there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But piling on more laws to try to achieve something when the existing laws are probably pretty good, they just haven't haven't worked as, it, as intended, is not the answer. Well, thank you, Pamela, and thank you to the BLS, the Business Law Section, for supporting this podcast uh, in honour, in recognition of Professor Bob Baxt. And it's, uh, it's a little bit disappointing that we didn't have the benefit of Bob's views because I'm sure he would have been absolutely fascinated by uh, these topics and would have had uh, a very strong and will express view on them. But uh, anyway, thank you to uh, to Pamela, thank you to the BLS, and thank you to, to SER for helping us with the production. <laughs>